1: You're listening to a podcast from The Word.
0: So what can I say about our second guest other than I don't think I can remember a time when he wasn't on the radio. If I can, if I can say that without without dating
1: you too much. Well, uh, there was a missing seven years when I went to America.
0: But I, I was still yeah. aware that you were on the radio, right. Johnny. And I still okay. felt that if I, if I leaned out of my bedroom window at the right angle with the right, you know... Uh, Set of coat hangers pointed so in the right hilarious. direction, and the and the you know the, the radio's waves were working in the right way. I would be able to pick you up, and we still can to this day. And a blessing it is too. Would you please welcome Johnny Walker?
1: I was standing at the back during the first bit. There's a gentleman there. Now he is a real music fan. He just pulled out his phone just to check. You know, does, does anybody still love me? And the screensaver is a photograph of, of Sun Records' label.
0: Oh, right. 40,
1: yeah, it's a very stylish screensaver, that. That's good. Very nice. Should be allowed like to get it free. That's right? a real music you man. Get,
0: you get points there for that. Yeah. Now, we're, we're focusing on the 70s, Johnny, yeah. here in the, this evening. And uh, as we did with Michael, we're going to hopefully start with a picture of you now this is probably a picture of you <laughs> you have to forgive me I've, I've filched pictures from all sorts of places and some of them may be embarrassing actually none of them are too embarrassing at all yeah um that's embarrassing enough so when this you is, look this, look like like is pirate, this is pirate radio days isn't it yeah. johnny when when's that roughly
1: uh i joined in 66 uh caroline started in 64 but i had a bit of wire hanging out of my uh Bedroom in Birmingham, trying to pick up the pirate stations, uh, and I managed to get a job on Radio Caroline, sixty six to March sixty eight. It lasted. Right, right. And then I joined the BBC. How did, you, BBC get, how in did you get a job on, on Radio? That's, that's oh, it's, how, how, how that it's um, I used to do uh, DJing in in clubs and and ballrooms and things in Birmingham, and a guy came up to me one night, and there'd been an article in the in the uh, Daily Mirror that Saturday about a brand new pirate station that was going to blow all the others out the water. Uh, called Radio England, run by a load of Americans. And he came up to me during this gig, and he said, Johnny, why don't you apply for a job? And I said, no, they're going to be all Americans. He said, they're bound to want a couple of Brits. So that Friday, the preceding day, my garage manager uh, gave me an ultimatum. Are you going to be a proper car salesman available in the evening to see customers, or are you going to mess around with this disc jockey nonsense? I'll give you two weeks to think it over. And I said, well, I don't need two weeks. I'll give you the answer now. I'll be a DJ. Thanks very much. So um, he suggested I, I get a job on Radio England. And on the Monday, I called up the mirror and said, how do I get in touch with these people? They're staying at the Hilton Hotel. Call them up at the Hilton. They said, uh, send us a tape. So I quickly made an audition tape that night. And then I thought, well, I won't put it in the post. I'm, not, I'm out of a job. So I'll get on the train and take it to London and knock on the door in the Hilton. And that's how I got the job.
0: So you were there until until they were closed down by the, uh, whatever it was called, the Marine Offences Act? The Marine
1: Offences Act of August 67. Uh, Radio 1 started in September, and the BBC sent out a memo that on no account must any producer employ the services of Johnny Walker. <laughs> was it
0: a, you, just you? Or were least, you on no, a long death list? It was just, it it was was just, just you
1: Because I defied the government, along with uh, you know, a couple of other blokes, and kept broadcasting <laughs> after the uh, all the other pirate stations shut down. Is it no account employed the service of johnny walker until a, 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 at least a year has gone by to let the, oh, taint roll really on the on, to let the taint of criminality subside <laughs> <laughs>
0: the taint of criminality yeah so you so you came back home yeah. and you you did whatever jobs you could do didn't you you were a delivery driver for a while
1: is that right i was yeah i was delivering eight-track stereos to uh, in a van that's a 70s... And I was you know. driving down Wood Lane and all of a sudden there's this loud horn is, is behind me. And this E-top with the, E-type with the, with the hood down goes blammering past and blows the horn again as it passed TV centre and waves. And I thought, you flash git. And then I realised it was Simon D. And I thought, he was the, his claim to fame is he was the first DJ on Radio Caroline. He's driving an E-type and got a hit TV show and I'm delivering 8-track stereos in an old van. I've gone wrong somewhere.
0: Because at the time, it must have seemed like his timing was perfect. And, yeah. And, you're, and you... I mean, seriously, you did feel you kind of missed it, didn't you, with, with Radio 1 and so forth? You were very other
1: worried. No, 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 because it was so shit at the beginning. <laughs> it was... I mean, Fleet Street used to call the BBC auntie because it was so staid and so respectable and so utterly boring and predictable. And they start... The, the, the Labour government, Harold Wilson at the time, knew that if they put the pirates off the air, they'd be extremely unpopular if there was no replacement. So they said to the BBC, get, you know, get your finger out and start a pop station. So that's when Radio, uh, the Light Programme became Radio 2 and they started Radio 1, which you had Tony Blackburn and Arnold going woof, woof in the morning. And then at <laughs> 9 o'clock, you've got Jimmy Young. What's the recipe today, Jim? Because Radio 1 and 2 used to combine at 9 o'clock. And... You know, the press said, Auntie raises her skirts. Well, you see, the thing is, they hired all the pirate DJs because they knew they were good, but they had all the original producers who'd been doing gardening club and family favourites, and they were supposed to be the arbiters of taste for this great new pop station. So I wasn't really interested in joining it at all at the beginning. But eventually, I realised if I wanted to be on the radio, I'd have to swallow my pride and go round to the BBC.
0: Right, right. No, so we—I think we've probably got a picture here. That uh, sorry, Ah. I'm sorry. This is very blurry. (laughs) This is my terrible picture of a of a very blurry snap that's in Johnny's book. Uh, published a few years ago. It's the inspiration for but, uh, Oasis, I, uh, I'd say. Know, when, people, when designers try to, you know, uh, summon up what life was like in the 70s, they always go into this kind of man fantasy. That's what life was like in the 70s. <laughs> Even for, a, you know, a, a popular DJ on Britain's
1: Brightest. So, so I, had, I had a flat that I rented in Belsize Park. It was 25 quid a week. Uh, it was all in, free heating, free electricity. Somebody came and cleaned it every day. And it was in a block that was made for professional people who used to go at the weekend. And so I had this flat with this lovely balcony and the whole building was empty at the weekend so I could play my music as loud as I could. So Saturday morning was favourite. I'd sort of wake up, have a cup of tea, have a fag, stagger out of bed, roll a joint, um, watch Thunderbirds on TV uh, and then put on my James Gang album. And and that was a great Saturday, that was. But it looks so cheerless, (laughs) doesn't it? You have it's smoking. smoking to keep warm. You didn't actually.
0: You didn't actually wait to wake up to light the first cigarette no. of the day, It's very nineteen seventies. And I'm sorry, I love this. That the only furniture refinement in yes. the room is well, that really nasty
1: lamp. Isn't the it? flat was basically one room with a little bathroom off it. so I had the bed one end and the living area down the other end. It was but it a is great seri- flat.
0: It is seriously something people forget about the nineteen seventies, particularly the early nineteen seventies. It's just how poor and drab. Everything was, wasn't it? I mean, things were filthy in London and, you know, and n- not exciting at all. Is that where true? Were you,
1: where were you living,
0: David? I was living London.
1: I don't, right. in London. <laughs> I don't remember the... it that way.
0: Well, I, you, you saw everything through a fog of smoke for a start, didn't you? Absolutely.
1: There was a lot more freedom. I mean, there was no cameras. I remember I wanted to buy a Renault 5 and I couldn't get one in England. And then an Irish friend of mine said, there's millions of them over here. We're building them. Come on over and buy one here. So... I went to Dublin and bought one and drove it back, and it had an Irish number plate, and I realised that um, if you got a parking ticket, there's no way of following it up. There's no connection between England and Ireland, so <laughs> I just park on yellow lines. You know, it's fantastic, <laughs> except. When the Irish trouble started, I was parked right outside the BBC no, and I came back to my car and there was like 15 coppers around it with mirrors looking underneath, <laughs> see if there's a bomb under there. <laughs>
0: so <laughs> so that, was, that, was your, that was your personal life. This is your professional life. You
1: yeah. Who are these left to Let's, t- let's you, go John through. Peel. Okay, there's me, there's John Peel. Noel, I guess. Noel Edmonds. Emperor Oscar at the back. Of and, course. And Stuart Henry. Of
0: course. Why, yeah. were, why were the five of you there for that particular picture? Was there a Were no you idea. as... A, Seems to be
1: a, a, a GPO tag right out of John Peel's head. <laughs> yeah, so, and he's got a glass of wine look. So I, can't, I have no idea what that was about.
0: So how did you find it when you first were there at Radio 1? How did you find it, the competition with other DJs? And, you know, did, did people look at each other very warily.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, people say, what DJs are your friends, Johnny? And you know, the truth of it is, none of us really are friendly to each other because there is such intense rivalry. That, um, you know, in public you pretend to be all pals and everything, but behind the scenes you're desperately worried about your ratings and if the, who's behind you trying to get your job and everything. But the hardest thing was having the freedom of being on a pirate station where everything was completely self-contained. It was beautiful. You were, the whole process was there. The generator down below producing electricity, 50,000 watt transmitter next to it, studio, big mast radiating the signal. Uh, you're on your own in the studio, there's no producers, there's nobody. You go to the BBC and you notice six floors of broadcasting house. And they have a thing they called the ring main, which enabled anybody in any office to tune in to any BBC output. So you knew they were all listening. So. Yes. And your producer would be there with a clipboard and a stopwatch. You know, stopwatch, timings, what's that all about? So it was a very different way of broadcasting. It took quite some time to get used to it.
0: Right, right. But, but this group of people would all be very competitive with each other, very carefully looking at each other to see who got the most advancement, who got the best slots and so forth.
1: Not really. I mean, John Peer was always kind of the anti-star but also, he, he was
0: late night, wasn't he?
1: So he yeah, wouldn't be worried about John Peel, um, Perfume Garden, he did on Radio London. And uh, he couldn't stand Tony Blackburn. Uh, he didn't like the daytime output of Radio One. He and I we became quite good friends. Um, but it wasn't that competitive. I mean, the Emperor Oscar had a, had a very distinctive style, American style. He used to do a great Saturday uh, lunchtime show. Stuart Henry was great, broad Scottish accent. He really got... Into Friends of the Earth and the environment before anybody else on his right, Sunday yes, morning he did, show, didn't
0: he? He did. We got um,
1: cocky this... bastard. I mean, look at <laughs> like...
0: that is a <laughs> that's a classic <laughs> picture. Fine pair of flares there, Johnny. I, 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 I wanted I, I wanted to, to introduce this picture because one of the early slots you got on Radio One, you were between Tony Blackburn and Jimmy Young. Is that yeah.
1: right? They wanted. How did that uh, work? Not very well. Um, <laughs> They, I, I started off on a Saturday afternoon, which was the place where they tried out DJs because they figured everybody's watching the football. Nobody's listening to the radio. So we'll put the new guys on there and see how they get on. Um, then they started giving me other shows like you do a week of What's New when you review new records. And then they said, well, we want to give you a daily show one hour between Tony Blackburn and, and Jimmy Young. And I used to have to hand over with Tony Blackburn every morning. I'd sort of crack ad-lib jokes, and, it was a, and there'd be dead silence from Blackburn's studio. It's sort of, um, And I remember Layla and other assorted love songs came out. And I loved uh, Clapton and Derek and the Dominoes. And I put this track, put the needle on, and heard Layla. And I thought, that's one of the greatest things I've ever heard. Said to my producer, I've got to play this. He said, well, it's not a single. I said, well, so what? It doesn't really matter, you know. But there was this great fear of anything that went around at 33 and a third amongst Radio 1. You know, got to be his top 40 single. And he absolutely said, if you play that, you're going to get fired. Uh, and I wish to this day I just, you know, denied him and played it. Because it was about two years before it came out and became a hit single.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So but the whole of the BBC was full of those rules because you couldn't even get in the old grey whistle test unless you had an album out.
1: They had a real auntie person called Doreen Davis who was an it's executive producer. Yes. Head of morals, we called her. And she said, that when Marvin Gaye's sexual healing came out, she said, we're not going to ban the record. You can play it, boys, but you must refer to it as the healing. And- LAUGHTER and the three female secretaries in her office, because uh, there were three exec producers in one office, and the girls wanted to go right next door to fill their kettle in the gents' loo. It was a long walk to go to the ladies. And they asked Doreen for permission, and she said, well, I'll think about it over the weekend. <laughs> so she came back on the Monday, and the secretary said, well, Doreen, can we fill our kettle in the You know, we'll bang on the door, make sure there's nobody in there. And she said, Janet and Susan can, but Mary can't. And she said, why can't Mary not go into the gents? Because she's not married. That's the sort of. She probably never seen one. You see, so in case she did see one going into the gents, it would frighten her to death. It was so a bit like the, that. Was the atmosphere you were? It you was were... a
0: bit like Grace Brothers in Are You Being Served? Wasn't it? Because kind of some of the senior people there was Doreen and there was Ron, wasn't they? they I'm talking about the, the senior kind of exec producers.
1: Ron, Ron. Belshaw was my producer, and they gave me two. Eventually, after doing. Uh, My apprenticeship between uh, Tony Blackburn and Jimmy Young, they gave me a lunchtime show. And they said, Johnny, you can have two hours, 12 till 2, two hours of needle time, which was wonderful. And, And back in those days, the Musicians Union, Performing Rights Society, they had a real stranglehold on broadcasters, and they limited. I think Radio 1 had eight hours a day of playing records. So your show would be filled with BBC bands and groups doing inferior cover versions of Top 40 Hits. So to have two hours of records was was absolutely fantastic. And then I had a producer called Ron Belcher, and I'd heard all about him. and I went to my executive producer and I said, this is fantastic, two hours of needle time, but you give me Ron Belcher. Have you got any advice for me? And they said, yeah, do everything in the morning and don't attempt to do anything in the afternoon. Because he spent two hours in the pub came back to the office and woe well tied any plugger who came in with a record and played it to him Ron Belcher go, what do you know about fucking music? You don't know anything about fucking music. <laughs> I mean, there's a great character called Adrian Williams who became one of the best promotion men of all time, was reduced to jelly by Ron Belcher. He was an absolute Jekyll and Hyde when he'd had a few drinks. Because all the power
0: at the time resided completely with Radio 1 and the, kind of the people who chose the playlist, didn't, didn't it?
1: Yeah. I mean, 14 million listeners. Um, we used to be able to pick one record a week, which is our record of the week. Uh, and I used to like to pick the left field ones just for fun, you know. The others used to pick the Dead certs. Oh, look at that, my record of the week's in the charts. So of course it bloody well is. It was a great record. So I remember I had Dead Skunk by Loudon Wainwright III. There's a dead skunk in the middle of the road, stinking to high heaven. heaven. I thought, that's a perfect lunchtime song. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then another one was Walk on the Wild Side. Yes. Um, and I absolutely loved that. It was one of the greatest things I'd ever heard. And um, Wednesday, the Daily Mail uh, was ringing up the BBC and said, what are you doing playing... What's the BBC doing playing Walk on the Wild Side by Lou Reed? So having played... I'd played it three times. I thought well, we can't ban it now. we just let him... And then we'll hope it will go away. And the, the aforementioned Doran Davis... Collared a new um, young fellow just joined Radio One called Chris Lyson. Say, so Chris, oh Chris, very handy. You're just walking by. Come in the office. I me. Mean, there's a lot of fuss. People are saying we shouldn't be playing Walk on the Wild Side. Um, but I've listened to it over again. I can't really see what all the fuss is about. So, but one thing does puzzle me, Chris. What does giving head mean? So, <laughs> Did Chris have an answer to that? Or... I, uh, you know, I don't envy his position. Really, <laughs> right, right,
0: right. just give it an idea. You know, so this is like 1973, seventy-four, something like that.
1: How much were you earning? Um, do you know, I can't remember. I got twenty-five quid a week uh, on the Pirates. Um, I don't know, maybe a hundred a week. 200 right, a right, week? Right. I can't really remember. And
0: were you getting lots of
1: opportunities
0: to open supermarkets and do all that? Yeah, kind I didn't. Because of... these leave... are the time when DJs were incredibly famous, yeah. weren't
1: they? I'd leave the supermarkets to to Tony Blackburn, and and I'd do discos and go all over the country doing doing discos and. I think we got 300 quid a night for those, all in cash, which was great. And I used to... I had a, my wife bought me a lovely roll-top desk, like out of a Western. You, you open the It was always so untidy, I could never close the roll-top. But there was all these secret little drawers in it, and they were stashed full, full of... of fivers, full of fivers. Full of fivers and tenors from these gigs. Just going down the off-license, love, stock up. I'll take about three <laughs> <you> inches t- <laughs> with me. So, take a little wad down there. Did
0: you ever think about that you, know, you did occupy a very particular... Uh, position at, at Radio One that you were you were allowed to be slightly naughty, but you could be you were day you were still daytime. You were not you were not late at night well, like John Peel and so forth.
1: Yeah, they love to separate. You were the Housewives' so. Choice, weren't you? Um, I suppose so. Yes, you were. Johnny. Yeah, okay. Don't be if, modest. If you say so, David. Well, I mean, traditionally around the world, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. are the important hours. Uh, For a commercial station, that's where you earn your money, especially the breakfast show. And breakfast is the key After 7 o'clock, you don't really worry how many people are listening. So, Radio 1 would separate very much top 40 singles until 7 p.m. And then after 7 p.m., you would have um, more kind of album progressive rock shows. Uh, Alan Black was the guy. John Peel was there. And I was always somewhere in the middle, really. right. Because there was an awful lot... I mean, I love your description in the email you sent out about this evening that I, when, when we were drowning in a sea of body, <laughs> uh, And I thought, that's, that's a very good description of a lot of the music that was around in the 70s. It was truly dreadful. Yep. And when the, the press were hailing the Bay City Rollers as the new Beatles, excuse <laughs> me, you know. Uh, and I called the musical garbage on the radio once. And... Um, it was front-page news, and uh, there was a hell of a stink about that.
0: Because you, you once introduced... I think I've got a, a picture of them. Uh, the, oh, wait, actually, we're going to come to that in a second. Uh, the, uh, that's, that's the basic Rollers with, uh, with Radio 1 boss Johnny Beerling there. Yeah, you isn't see, isn't
1: Johnny, it? Johnny, he liked to cut you know, the bomber jacket, and he looked long-haired, and not to be trying to hit... He was, he was pretty good, um, Johnny Bealing, but it was the fun era of Radio 1. Everything had to be fun. And they decided to have a... I think they hadn't spent their budget. And just like most government departments, let's face it, the BBC is kind of an arm of the government, really. So if they didn't spend it, they wouldn't get it the next year. So they're frantically finding ways to spend a whole load of money before the end of the financial year. So they booked Marilyn Park. They had the DJs racing around in saloons. uh, And they flew all the DJs down in helicopters. I think we, we each had a helicopter to take us down there. That got rid of a few quid. And, and they booked the Bay City Rollers. And there was this lake in the middle of Mallory Park. So they thought, this would, because there was Bay City Roller fan hysteria going on, so they thought, what well, the a great idea for security. Put the Bay City Rollers in a boat. They can chug around the lake, and all their fans around the edge of the lake can sort of wave at their heroes and see them and everything. But of course, they were, there they were, the Bay City Rollers. Here were these hysterical girls... It was only a pond. It wasn't very deep. Let's get in, girls. <laughs> so they all sort of waded into the pond. And fortunately, um, I don't know whether they'd been booked, or but members of the BBC sub-aqua club were there. So they were wading in and Smartic. there, and their sort of flippers and snorkels and everything, to pull out these girls, oh, drag them to the bank. And then they immediately... So John Peel and I are John, standing John there. John Peel tells this story. John, God, yeah, yeah, and John, John and I were standing there, and he said, Johnny... Just look at this and one day he said you will never see anything so bizarre again in your life. At which point another speedboat came round the lake with Tony Blackburn waving in it and at the wheel was a Womble. I tell you it was like the greatest acid trip of all time. Only it was for real. <laughs> that's that's
0: fun radio one. That mid, is fun in the radio mid, one. Mid seventies. Yeah. But you, you, you got into trouble for uh, for just sounding less than enthusiastic when you announced the basically rollers. Well, that's were when the one. yeah
1: they they were beaten up Bye Bye Baby and be number one for five weeks. And I used to introduce the the new chart statistics on a Tuesday, which is when it came out. And the Bay City, and I said to my producer, Ron Belcher, who was sober at the time, I said, Ron, tell me we've got a new number one. He said, no, it's the same. So I thought, oh, shit. <laughs> so I did all the chart, and then I finally get to one o'clock when I play the number one, and I said, at number one, it's the Bay City Rollers. It was a bit like that. And um, about ten minutes later, he said, the BBC switchboard is flooded with Bay City Rollers fans, angry that you didn't sound enthusiastic and excited that they're at number one again. You better apologise, which is not the right thing to say, really. So that's when the record ended and I opened up the mic and I said, listen, I don't mind... I said, I'm bored with the Bay City Rollers. I said, the record's been number one for six weeks. You can love them all you like. I don't have to love them. In fact, I think they're musical garbage. So that's, that's really when, when that thing So came that, out, that so. mended the fence, obviously. You know, my... A <laughs> 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 little bit, you know, the fire got a bit thicker at the BBC. But I mean... It wasn't all like that, but it was, like I say, I was in the middle between evening time rock and daytime pop. And I wanted to play music that was coming out because a lot of groups then wouldn't put out singles. Uh, Led Zeppelin famously would not release a single because they didn't want to go on top of the pop. They didn't want to be part of that pop thing. Well, they didn't need to. No. So you had so much music. You had Steely Dan, you had Fleetwood Mac coming out of L.A., the, the American version of Fleetwood Mac... Uh, you had Lou Reed, um, Steve Harling, Courtckney Rebel, Rod Stewart, even in the beginning. You know, I struggled to get a Rod Stewart record on, and what i didn 't like, they said it 's not suitable for Radio One. I said, "Well, if it makes a chance in three weeks' time, you 'll be playing it, won 't you?" Oh, yes, we will." And I said, "Well what you know, i, I wouldn 't mind if they stuck to their principles right. they, so, so I would get letters from listeners saying, why didn 't you play that new Rod Stewart record?" You know, you were very slow on the uptake walker there. Yeah, I'm surprised at you. And, you know, they didn't know the behind the scenes. There's a great hassle over playing what I would call quality well, music. Wouldn't you rather have had an evening show, then? Would you not well, better suited to, to doing a slot for people? In July 76, when my two-year contract ran out, and Derek Chinnery, the head of Radio 1, said, Johnny, I want you to do another two years on the lunchtime show, but no more album tracks. And I said, "What do you mean, more Bay City Rollers?" He said, "Yeah, if they're in the chart." And I said, "How about a show at the weekend, where I can have more freedom, or an evening show?" And he he said, "You're crazy." He said, "Nobody gives up a daytime show on radio. Want to go to a show at the weekend? Was always sort of you know B division radio." Um, so he said, it's out the question. It's two years on the, on the lunchtime show or nothing. So I said, well, it better be nothing then. So that's when I left. Now, we'll, we'll come to that. I know his words now. I'll never forget his words. He said, so when I said it better be nothing then, and I hadn't got a job to go to, and I'd got two kids and mortgage and all the rest. But he said, you know the trouble with you, Johnny? I said, no, what's that, Derek? He said, you're too into the music, man. <laughs> <laughs> Sackable offence. I, I just, just want to... Yeah.
0: <laughs> I just want to go back to this Johnny because you
1: would <laughs> wouldn't you?
0: You you talked in, in your in your book which was published a few years ago but I was looking at it recently uh, about you know the fact that in the 70s the record companies were they were always parties you know so you could do your show and then you go wander around EMI and see if you can get some free records and a drink or whatever and then Warner brothers and so forth there were just parties going on all the time weren't they and you were you were drawn into
1: one rather unfortunate one, weren't you? There's a record company called President Records run by a fellow called Ed Kasner, and their plugger used to come around every week saying, you must come to one of our parties. You know, there's plenty of drink, there's pretty girls, it's really good fun. And, and, he, and he, every week he was nagging us. And I said to my producer, Stuart Grundy, I said, the only way to shut him up, let's just go to one, and then, then he'll leave us alone. So we agreed to go to one. We picked up in a taxi about 7 o'clock, driven round to Notting Hill Gate, go in, ring on this... Um, door, and this blonde opens the door and ushers us in, and there's nobody else in there. I thought, what sort of party is this, you know? So anyway, she sat us down and then served us a drink, and then I thought, this is odd, there's something not quite right here, and then she said, and it confirmed when she said, would you boys like to go upstairs and have a look through the two-way mirror? So, um, it turned out, it was Janie Jones's infamous Notting Hill um, House of Ill Repute. So, um, Yeah, we already got caught there. So, I mean, I went up there with all these producers in their suits. (laughs) She said I went up like a rat up up the stairs like a rat up a drainpipe, which is not true. I had my leg in plaster at the time, so I was hobbling (laughs) up the stairs. But anyway, so we looked through this uh, two-way mirror, and and I thought it was quite interesting. I'd heard about two-way mirrors, you know, so the physics of it is quite interesting to me, so I (laughs) was checking it out. And then she said, well, come on, boys. She said, go in out of the room and join the girls. So we sort of sidled in the room and sort of sidled around this enormous bed with three... This you and Stuart Grundy. Uh, and a couple of other uh, producers in their sort of, you know, three-piece suits and everything. <laughs> and no, nobody does anything. I thought, she said, come on, boys. Are you men or are you, are, you, are you mice? Get in there. So I thought, it's down to me, really, to keep up the good name of the BBC. But at least it's... <laughs> So I got my kit off and got stuck in. And, uh, and then a couple of weeks later, I get a call from uh, Detective Chief Inspector Jarvis here of Scotland Yard. So I said, oh, hello. He said, we'd like to have oh, a well, chat. Oh, hello. Yeah. I thought, is oh, it we'll- my car? Yeah, I wonder what you want. So he said, I'd like to have a chat with you. Would you mind coming down to Scotland Yard? And I said, well, would this be a voluntary chat or is this compulsory? He said, I'd rather think you can take it as compulsory. So I went down to Scotland Yard, never thought about taking a lawyer with me or anything else, told him the story verbatim. Uh, And I said, We got tricked into it. I had no idea who picked up the tab for the entertainment that went on. He said, Well, he said, it might well come to court. He said, But your anonymity will be protected. You'll be Mr. X or Mr. Y. So I thought, Well, thank goodness for that. And then all of a sudden, front page story in, in the tabloids DJ on a bed with three girls, Mr. T. So I thought, well, that's all right, then. I'll go away with that one. I get into uh, Radio 1 to do my lunchtime show, and Jimmy Young seems to walk in, and he hits the talkback button between his studio and mine, and he goes, morning, Mr. T. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought, how the hell does he know that? And then I read further into the article, and this one of the girls said, yeah, I was on the bed with two other girls with this Radio 1 teacher. I remember him, he had his leg in plaster. <laughs> <laughs> Funny enough, there's a speakeasy story, which was a fantastic mecca. Um, because the, 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 uh, the roadies, uh, the lower, lower sort of musicians and, and the uh, music journalists would hang around the bar then if there's live music, and I saw Bob Marley there, I saw Jimi Hendrix there, I saw Eric Clapton there. Uh, but then if you wanted a bit of peace and quiet somebody something, you went into what they called a greenhouse, which was a wonderful area. It was literally like a square glass box. And you go in there, and there'd be Armut Ertigan with Clapton and John Lennon and you know everybody. It was a, such a scene of cooperation, friendliness, um, everybody kind of... Mates, you know, it was an amazing scene, the music scene in the, in the 60s and 70s. And I walked in with this leg in plaster and crutches. And some years earlier on, Caroline, when we had to pay records, uh, played records, Don Arden, famous uh, uh, record uh, manager and stuff, Sharon
0: Osborne's father. Sharon
1: Osborne's father. And he was notorious. He was one of the biggest crooks in the music business. And it, he could be vicious. And he made, he played this record called Sunrise Sunset from Fiddler on the Roof. And it was the most awful record I'd ever heard in my life. And he, I didn't know, he'd invited all his friends around to a champagne party at his house. He had a radio in every room. And he said, my song's going to be on Radio Caroline between now and 11 o'clock. <clears throat> and I'm, you know, it was getting like 20 to 11, quarter to 11. his friends were saying, where's your record then, Don? You know, I've not heard it yet. And he said, it'll be played. Because he'd paid hundred quid to get it paid. So I'd saved it to the end of the hours. So I said, "I've got to play this now," and I put it on. And he's he sunrise sunset. I said, "Isn't that the biggest dirge you've ever heard in all your life? You wouldn't want it played at." F- I wonder if it sounds better at forty-five. So I stuck it to forty-five. So it then sounded like a chipmunk. So I said, "No, maybe thirty-three is better." So I really trashed the record big time. Don Arden went ballistic. Rung up the guy who was running uh, Full Solomon, Caroline Carolina time. He tried to hire a boat to get me off the ship that night. Fortunately, anybody who had a boat was in the pub, not really interested in going out to sea that night. Um, so it all kind of dissipated. But then when I hobbled into the speakeasy, there was Don Arden with all his mates around the table. And he said, there you go. I kneecapped him. <laughs> I got him. It took me a couple of years, but I got him, that <laughs> bastard. <laughs> Claim credit. I'd actually broke my leg in a stock car accident. Nothing to do with Don Arden.
0: Well, fair enough. Fair enough. They, they, so we, we talked about the rollers. So 1976, Derek Chinnery tells you you're too into the music, and you, yeah. you go to you go to K Sound in San Francisco is where you kind of end up. Uh, sorry, these are these are the guys. Just to give you an idea of the kind of change in in background from Radio One, those are the guys who did the morning show on K Sound.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's the Tony Blackbird. It? Yeah, I just got very lucky because. Um, I wanted to go to America because the Radio England American DJ said, Johnny, if you ever wanted to go to America, you could do all right, you know. So I I pressed up. um, I did an audition tape by going around to people who'd worked with me, and it was kind of an audio CV. And I put it onto an LP with a blank label, and I sent it to significant radio stations in New York and Los Angeles and San Francisco. And I thought, they're going to get this blank, and hopefully they're going to put it on to find out what's on there. So, by luck, after I'd been out of work for a few months after the Derry Chinery incident, I got a call from KSAN, would I like to go around and do the breakfast show? Because they had, their regular guy was coming to Europe, and they thought it'd be a good swap, really. And I remember, so six to ten in the morning, and I got there at sort of half past five, and Dave McQueen, the news guy, came in with long hair, and, Johnny, want a joint? The first thing he did was come in in the morning at six o'clock, rip the news off the thing, roll a joint, and then rewrite it for the KSAN news, so... And this guy is a, a fellow called Tom O'Hare, who's program director at KLOS in Los Angeles. And he invited me down to go on air and he said, Johnny, you can't go on unless you're stoned. And I think he thought, there's this BBC DJ who's been constrained all these years. I'll get him high, we'll stick him on the radio, and then it'll be really interesting. <laughs> well, when you get really stoned, and they all smoke their grass completely neat, and it's strong stuff. And he gave me this joint... And sometimes, you know, you become more ebullient, more extrovert. And sometimes other you just times, watch the, record the opposite around. happens. Yeah, you get completely introvert and scared to death. Here I am in bloody Los Angeles on one of the biggest radio stations. And I was well into this kind of hippie spiritual thing. And I was sort of playing a few album tracks and reading excerpts from Carl Old Chebron's The Prophet uh, in between the records. And I sort of came out and there was just dead silence in the radio station. <laughs> and uh, I thought, yeah, I'll blown that one. <laughs> but I stayed for K- at KSM for, for quite some time. And, and although I'd left in 76 when the whole roots of the beginnings of punk rock was happening, which I thought was the best shot in the arm for the music thing, uh, I played more punk rock in San Francisco than ever I could have done if I'd stayed at Radio 1. So... There was a very good punk scene and a Clash played there and The Gang of Four and Dave Edmonds, Elvis Costello, Nick Lowe. They'd, they'd all play San Francisco.
0: So how did you find I mean, people have this very romantic idea of American radio, you know, that it's from Wolfman Jack at the end of American Graffiti and, so, and it's all lone guys and allowed to do what they want. How did
1: you find it compared to that image? Well, it was very intimidating because although I'd played the occasional album tracks, I was really stuck in the Top 40 format thing. And there were these guys, and the rule was at K-SAN, um, every now and then, play a record from the Red Dot library. And these were the hot new albums that were out at the time. And they would just be in a little trolley thing that could wheel around. And then the whole of one wall of the studio was covered with albums. Uh, and then you just step out into the library, and then all these walls were just floor to ceiling with every great album that ever been, from jazz to comedy to rock to everything. So your hardest decision really was what's the first record you, you're going to play. And once you've got the first one on, then it kind of gives you an idea. You could do thematic segues, you know, it was always two or three records in a row with no chat. So um, it was amazing freedom. That after I got into it, I really, really enjoyed And every now and then I'd bang on Little Lever's Locomotion or something like that. You do know, you, just... Do you miss that nowadays, that the technology of radio has changed so much,
0: that you're in a radio studio... For a start, there's no well,
1: records when they digitised. Not, not even a CD player. Yeah, when they digitised um, Radio Two studios, it all went digital. Everything is going to be on a server. It's just a title on the screen. Um, then there was uh, there was a rumour not only were we not going to get any turntables, there was a rumour going around to be no CD players, which was to stop us bringing our own CDs in and playing them. And Steve Wright and I really created merry hell, saying we've got to have CD players. So, the, the lovely thing about playing albums was you had the artwork, you had the information. Yes. Uh, you could roll a joint on an album, well, on a CD. Got, you got
0: the idea to play it by the fact that you saw it.
1: Yeah, well, it, it was a physical thing. Yeah. So, it was very, this is why people are going back to vinyl, because it's a much more of a whole experience, really. Apart from the fact the sound is warmer and better and more real. You know, I'm getting into high-res audio now, so I'm getting a little portable high-res Walkman thing with with big files in there and hearing the sound how the engineer heard it when they right. when they made the record. Um, and then CDs that, came though? out, and you can't roll a joint on a CD, but you can chop a line of coke. Oh uh, yes, and that's one of the things. That's why I think that whole drug scene changed really. Oh, <laughs> I blame CDs for that. Okay,
0: <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. You see, that, this is just generic picture of DJ, you know. Yeah. This, is, this is your traditional mad picture of a DJ. And I put this here because I just wanted to ask the question. It's a serious question. Who is m- the DJ? Mark and I have talked about this many times. It doesn't yeah. matter.
1: Tom Lodge, Canadian oh, okay. DJ. Oh, with a, with a, a DJ D- on Radio Carmel. Fox uh, across his shoulders. Yeah.
0: I, the, and the, the question is this, it's a serious question.
1: Yeah. Are DJs mad? Um, a lot of them are. Uh, a lot of them, are, I think, are uh, insecure and desperate for love. Uh, I always wished I'd learned guitar. You know, I was born on the same day as Eric Clapton. And I thought, if astrology works, why aren't I a guitar hero, really? Um, so I always felt a bit secondhand, though. I was borrowing other people's talent, but, you know, as a way of. See, so DJs
0: a job. feel unworthy.
1: Um, some, but there are all sorts of different kinds of DJs. There's there's the John Peel DJ where. You know, he's absolutely the anti-hero DJ. Then there's people like that and Emperor Roscoe, who are like Wolfman Jack DJs. Then there's Kenny Everett DJ, who he's more interesting in a way than the records he plays, the things he used to do between the records. So there are many different kinds of DJs, but I guess... The, a lot of them are a bit neurotic. But I when think. you
0: and I were, were, did odd things at radio, radio 1, you know, in about 1981, there was there was also the kind of DLT type people who were just utterly addicted to, to just having that huge audience, you know. Uh, DLT, yeah, simply, there was a, he, was, he just had to be talking to a large number of people all the time. He couldn't just have a conversation with one person. Yeah, no, if you've got,
1: if you, if you got an ego, you become a DJ, I suppose, you know. But there are a lot of egomaniacs, or megalomaniacs, we used to call them.
0: But they're also, as we said earlier, they're very insecure because they know that, you know, if, at, at a stroke of a pen, they can be completely yeah. replaced tomorrow. So you've got somebody like Chris Moyles, who quite recently was broadcasting to millions, and now isn't. Yeah. And it must be a very hard
1: thing to deal with. No, it's a, you do realise in your career but that, 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 that there's nothing that ends so quickly as the career of a DJ. One minute, you're the bee's knees, you're on every day, you've got trailers going out, plug in your show... Something goes wrong, a new boss comes in, wants to change it, you're gone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and your name is never mentioned again. It <laughs> happened to me at GLR when Matthew Banister's was in charge, when um, I said on name one night, I said, I really fancy a pint of Guinness. And within 20 minutes, a, a leather-clad courier with a crash helmet came into the studio with a pint of Guinness. So how do you do that on a motorcycle? Um, but of course he parked up and bought one in the pub across the road he bought it in and then maggie thatcher was going to lose the vote as tory leader and i said there's going to be street parties you know maggie thatcher it's the end of maggie a lot of people hadn't known anything other than maggie thatcher's prime minister um and for that i matthew bannister i think was instructed by john Burt to fire me so he did it while i went out away on holiday um they don't do it to your face. You either get a phone <laughs> well, call. you just came back with somebody else. I came back. Was he chair. said, Johnny, I want to have tea with you this afternoon at four o'clock. Can I meet you in broadcasting hours? So I go there. So he said, you're not going to be on GLR anymore. And um, so I said, well, can't, because of Maggie Thatcher and ordering a pint of Guinness on the air. And I said, well, I'd, I'd like to do my last show. Can I do another week? He said, no, you've done your last show. And so that night when everybody's expecting me to come back from holiday, I just was not there people rung up the radio station, the people who answered the phones instructed that not to mention my name, i say no comment if anybody asked where I was. So, you just uh, one minute you're there and the next minute you're history, mate. <laughs> yeah, history. So, well, as the government
0: minister who turned up this morning and found his, his- Security pass didn't work, and that was when he knew he'd.
1: be Well, every reshuffed. time I go into BBC, I got my pass in my wallet along, and I sort of swipe it on the thing, and sometimes it doesn't work, and I think, uh oh, this is it. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's the
0: first. Thing that's the, the, to tap, about <laughs> David that's Cameron. the tap on the shoulder. <laughs> yeah. So you know, uh, yeah, I've just got to. we going to ask you about this. Oh, this is, is extraordinary because the, the boat, the rock, the you know, the, the the
1: Richard Curtis film about pirate radio. How true is any of it? Uh, virtually nothing. Basically. Well, um, I'm glad the film was made. I'm glad the story was told. Parts of it were very good. Parts of it were too much focused on a love story. Um, we never allowed women on the ship. We, we had Dutch chefs who cooked the most awful food. So the, they, were, they had a ship that was a, just a nonstop party going on. But I went down to Portland Harbour when they were filming it, and this guy heard I was on set, Philip Seymour Hoffman. He came up to me and he said, he said, are you Johnny Walker? I said, yeah. He said, I would like to shake your hand. Philip Seymour Hoffman. I said, well, geez, I was speechless. I didn't know what to say. Because I think they'd realize after trying to live like pirates on ships, just anchored in the harbor, but in a force ten gale out in the North Sea in a little boat that's going up and down like this, it was pretty, pretty hairy occupation. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I love the scene in the boat, the rock, when he's sitting on the deck, gazing wistfully out to sea. Somebody comes up to him and said, well, what's the matter? We're having a good time. He said, yeah, no, that's exactly it. He said, i realized that we're having the best years of our lives right now, and it ain't going to last. And that's the way I felt when I went to Radio 1. I thought I've had the best years on the radio I'll ever have at the beginning of my career. So, so that neatly brings us up to, you know, this career is still going on. Um, it is, yeah. I don't know what else I would do. I still love <laughs> well, doing don't it. But do you think
0: it's amazing, though, that... I mean, not you particularly, you know, that, that a job like that can
1: last that long? Um, I suppose it is, but then, you know, look at all the groups... Uh, look at the Rolling Stones. Look at all those people. All these groups that came out in the 60s and 70s all thought they'd be dead by 21 or they'd be doing it for two years. And If you said to any of them, then you're still going to be doing this in your 60s. You know, I, hit, I hit 70 a couple of weeks ago. Aaron Clapton, 70. Um, but we all still love what we do, which is why we we still keep doing it. So as long as my brain still can remember stuff and my voice is okay... I'd love to be on the radio. His voice, is,
0: his voice is still okay, isn't it? <laughs> do you know, and, he, and he cleans
1: I, his I love teeth. Doing, I love doing, we do this show, The series called Johnny Walker's Long Players, and David's a part of that and adds huge, um, huge stuff to that program. And, uh, and I, you uh, love being on the radio John, too. Johnny's, Johnny's
0: secret is he cleans his teeth before he broadcasts. Yes?
1: That's yeah, right, isn't, isn't it? it? Yeah, I do, yeah, yeah. Why? Is he works very hard in his mouth. Well, you don't want your mouth full of um, some bloody cheese sandwich, do you? When you go, you know. Also if you, you want to enunciate properly,
0: he put me yes. on some very good licorice pellets, which are very good for the throat, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, his so throat, throat has been his, his profession for, <laughs> for fifty years now. Long yeah. may it continue, ladies and gentlemen. Johnny
1: Walker. Thank you very much. Thank you. My God, this—we've stayed up to nine o'clock. This is rock and roll. <laughs> so why do you get kicked out at nine
0: o'clock? We don't get kicked out at nine o'clock, but we—the we, but audience are good enough to come early, and yeah. so we start early. They need to and have and people drink. have the opportunity to go and get a meal or whatever, and they deserve to go a and drink. get them. Thank, Thank you very much for coming. Thank you very much for coming.
1: This podcast was brought to you by the Word.